friends, welcome to the podcast. Today we have the outstanding honor of hearing from Dr. Stanley Hauerwas. And I'll tell you more about him in just one second. But first, let me tell you about where you need to be, May 3rd through 6th. And that is with me at Harbor, the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. It is a great event at a great place with some really great people. There are a lot of speakers that you're going to recognize from the podcast. Our guy Richard Beck, Sean Palmer, Christine Kane, uh, Rick Ashley, Chris Seedman. Um, like there's just a lot of people that you recognize from the podcast. Uh, Christine uh, Christine Kane will be there, but I already said that. But also uh, Christine Cobes Dumay, who is the author of Jesus and John Wayne. If you haven't listened to the podcast, that she and I, her and I, she and I, that was done with both of us. Uh, a few months ago, um, it was a great podcast, and we decided that was so much fun, so let's run this back in person, and so we're going to be doing two sessions together out there at uh, Harbor, May 3rd through May 6th. We're on Wednesday, Thursday, so whatever dates that is, that's when we're going to be doing our thing, but uh, you're going to want to be there the whole time because it'll be a great event, and I hope to see you out there. Now, let me tell you about who we're talking to today. It is Stanley Hauerwas. He's currently the Professor Emeritus out at Duke Divinity, and Stanley Harawas has written so many things, it's almost uh, impossible for me to list off all the books of his that I've read that have had an impact on me and my life. I just finished preaching through Matthew, uh, preaching through the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel, and his commentary was one of my main uh, resources for that. His book on uh, the Lord's Prayer, Lord Teach Us, that he wrote with uh, William Willimont is one of the most uh, like foundational uh text that I use to help me understand uh, Sermon on the Mount. He just has done so many things. And one of the things I love about him is that he doesn't come across like a like pretentious academic. I'm not saying everyone is, but like there's definitely like there's a feel about it. And it's kind of I kind of feel like grad students and sometimes academics can can feel like sommeliers. I'm not like a wine expert. Like I, I'm a big fan of Jesus and he obviously made some wine. So like I'm cool with wine, but like I'm not like an expert. But uh, sometimes when I hear a sommelier talking, I'm like, who are you talking for? Like it's it, like all the words they use. Like I don't understand half of them. Like what are they trying to describe? It, like This is a, a dry, it's a dry wine. It's a dry heat. And in that way, it's like a, it's like a Phoenician wine. It's a dry heat that you'll really love. It's it's fruit forward, and just, I hear all these words. I'm like, dude, just shut up. I don't really care. Uh, just give me some water. Um, and sometimes I feel the same way, like with academics. They're just like they're talking just for themselves. And one of the things about Hauerwas is that he he is like the antithesis of that. He is straightforward. And you'll hear as we talk about on the podcast his life growing up. Uh, he, he comes from. Um, you know, Bricklayer's home. He worked as an assistant. I forget the exact word you're supposed to use for that. And like that work ethic and that kind of ethos of just a blue collar person comes through despite being at the upper echelon of academics. I mean, this is the person that Time magazine a few years ago called America's best theologian. Yet he has like the grit and the like the mentality of like this blue collar 
uh, construction person. And so it's it's just a, like this beautiful recipe that created Dr. Stanley Hauerwas, and he is just a, a gift to the church, and I know you're going to love hearing from him. Uh, one thing I will warn you, his audio is less than ideal, and I'm trying to clean it up the best I can, but um, I mean, the guy's like in his 80s, and I wasn't going to be like, hey, let's uh, fix your audio a little bit more, because just like, just getting to talk to him was the honor, and I didn't want to, you know push my luck with this guy. Um, so uh, audio is less than ideal, but the conversation is just spectacular, and I hope you really enjoy getting to hear from Dr. Stanley Harawas. So check it out. Thank you for taking the time. Now, one of the things I really appreciate about you is when I first emailed you, uh, one of the first things you said in response is, upon finding out that I'm from Austin, Texas, is that you wanted to make sure that I knew that you were from Texas, which of course I did. Tell me why... That is something you want to lead to make sure I knew about you. They're not particularly inclined to bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have anything so, to live up to, huh? No, no. I, I say Australians and Texans are a lot alike. Oh. Uh, they, both, they both come from criminal classes, so <laughs> they've, got, <laughs> they've, got, they've got very little to live up to. So what you see is what you get. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I, I respect it. Now, I'll tell you something. My dad is from Dallas. My parents met in West Texas and Abilene. My dad took a job in Philadelphia, and he wanted to ensure, though, that his son was born over Texas soil. And so he literally had a bag of Texas dirt in the delivery room to make sure that I was born over Texas soil, even though I was, you know, in Philadelphia. Where, um, where in Dallas was he raised? You know? he, was, uh, he was born in Oak Cliff. And then his family eventually moved up to uh, Richardson. I see. Now, that, that, that's high cotton people. High cotton. Now, you're from uh, Pleasant Mount? Pleasant Grove. Pleasant, Pleasant Grove. Grove. Okay. Yeah. That's the ju- church was Pleasant Mount. Okay. And that's just like just south of uh, Dallas, right? Yeah. It's kind of southeast. Mm-hmm. It's, it, and now I call it the Grove. The Grove? We, we, yeah. We didn't know that uh, it was, you know, it was working class people. Mm-hmm. But I know you did some uh, work up in Highland Park and Park Cities, which is a little... All over. Yeah, that, those are high cotton people up there, right? Yeah, it's where they tear down a house that was worth $2 million to build one for four. Mm-hmm. We laid brick all over. Yes, sir. That area. Your, your dad was a bricklayer uh, for my audience, yeah. and uh, you did that for years as a young man, as a kid. I was a laborer mm-hmm. as a kid for many years, and then... My dad, when I was around 15, taught me how to lay bread. Mm-hmm. Now, for my audience, they might not know that you are one of the most uh, accomplished academics uh, in the world right now. How, how do you think your upbringing, being someone who grew up in a bricklayer's home and being uh, someone who's on the job site for many years, uh, for many people, like those two worlds don't often collide and intersect. How, how do you think your upbringing in that community helped you like be who you are in the academic world work you work you work there's always someone smarter than you but you work Mm -hmm. and 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 i love the work i was given to do so um it never occurred to me that i had to do something what i had to do i wanted to do Mm -hmm. so uh i think work is really the heart of it. Mm-hmm. I, one of my more recent books is called The Work of Theology, mm-hmm. where I, I do some things about work. Hmm. 
when I started this podcast uh, about eight or nine years ago, uh, at the time, well, the guy that I worked out with, one of my best friends, uh, who's also named Luke, um, he was a concrete guy. Uh, he started that. His dad had a, a concrete company. He started when he was in high school, basically, and has been doing it for 20, 25 years. And so they always, they never get foundations plumb. They never do? <laughs> they never do. So the bricklayer has to make it up by... Uh, by creating a more uh, fulsome bed joint that's necessary. Hmm. Hmm. So right. is, there right. always, is there a rivalry? There's, be- al- there's always uh, conflicts between the various trades. Hmm. Bricklayers, bricklayers never trust concrete people are, um, are carpenters. Hmm. Carpenters don't know how to square a corner if their life depended on it. Hmm. So bricklayers always have to hide what had gone wrong. Is this kind of like how my Episcopalian neighbors always are curious about how I'm implementing the sacraments of the Eucharist? Like they always wonder if I'm doing it right or wrong? That might be a nice analogy. Uh, Are you ordained? Uh, I'm from the Churches of Christ, and so we don't do a formal Uh, ordination. I've got an MDiv, went to grad school for that, but uh, we don't actually do that uh, in the same way that Episcopalians do. Do you go to Abilene Christian? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's a good school. Oh, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, my, my dad actually retired from a psychology department there, and that's where I did my undergrad and my MDiv over at ACU. Had a great experience there. Have you been on campus there before? Uh, several times. Okay. And I love it that your theologians, that one of your theologians is a patristic scholar. The other is an expert on Newman. So the Church of Christ, which believes that you've got the New Testament now, has produced at least two theologians that know there's something in between. Yeah, we've we've done our best to try to occasionally listen to those people as well, but uh, it is definitely swimming upstream. Um, but we have we have a lot of great people. I'm I'm glad you've had a good experience at Abilene Christian. Did um uh, did you grow up uh, using musical instruments? No, sir. No, I, I grew up acapella only until. Uh, uh-huh. Actually, the, the church that I currently serve, uh, we added an instrumental service about five years ago, and uh, that was quite a change. A uh, uh, trumpet or? Uh, I mean, we have more drums and a guitar and uh, uh-huh. keyboard and that that kind of stuff. I see. Right. Can't have I remember when I grew up, the argument was about harps. Hmm. Uh, there are harps in the Old Testament. There's the possibility for some Church of Christ people that harps are acceptable. Yeah, uh, that wasn't the church I grew up in. The church I grew up in said you can't have any of it. And uh, in our less um, charitable moments, we actually compared worshiping, say, with the Methodist or the Baptist with their instruments to be uh, equivalent to worshiping with the Canaanites or uh, anyone worshiping Baal in the Old Testament. So, yeah, we, we didn't like those. Were you baptized in living water? Uh, I was baptized in our uh, auditorium, so we were not out an outdoor baptism. Uh, that's a real question for some Church of Christ, whether you were being baptized. Because you had to be baptized in living water. Mm-hmm. Right. I, that's the reason... That's, that's how you could show you were different than the Baptists. The yes. Baptists use use those tubs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we're we're uh, the hmm, 
I was baptized in Philadelphia in the wintertime, and uh, so it was maybe a little bit too cold for living water. I see. No. No, that's what, growing up in Texas, that's what I thought a theological dispute was about. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that's basically what my childhood faith was about, debating those things and... um, and so going to Abilene Christian, I was kind of opened up to a whole new world of, you know, theological studies, which included your work, uh, among many others. And uh, uh, how does it feel to get to connect to so many different people across different traditions who've found your work to be very meaningful, including myself? You don't want to make mistakes <laughs> hmm. because uh, you want the work to invite in different traditions um, creative responses that help build within those traditions more faithful uh, living to the gospel. And so uh, I say I'm I'm a living ecumenical movement, mm-hmm. as someone that was raised evangelical Methodist. Um, um, went to a seminary that was uh, UCC, basically. Um, Then taught at a Lutheran school uh, where I worshipped with the Lutherans with the Green Book, which was terrific. And then spent 14 years with the Roman Catholic which leaves a real mark on you. How so? And, uh, um, Catholicism creates a world. And it's um, it takes some living with it to appreciate what a world it is. And, uh, I, I mean, Protestants have such a... Uh, uh, it, it's very hard for us to understand Catholicism on the inside. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, so oftentimes Protestants, at least for the ones that we grew up with, think that Catholicism is a top-down religion where the Pope tells you what to do. Well, that's just false. I mean, the... Um, uh, order of Catholicism produces people who are extraordinarily often articulate exactly because they have faith that the church is the church and therefore their job is to think better how the church needs to be in order to live out its integrity. Hmm. um, And when people say, you know, well, they're all the same. Uh, I say, have you ever been in a room with Jesuits and Dominicans at the same time? I mean, they're very different people, usually. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Catholicism taught me much about uh, how to 
what it means for the church to be the church. Yeah. Uh, so you say Catholicism creates a world. Uh, I, I've also heard you say that the church is God's imagination for the world. Is that a, one of your yes, quotes, right? right. I, I kind of hear right. those. They're, they're, they're kind of uh, adjacent to each other, aren't they? They are. They are. I, um, uh, uh, I, you know, I say it's one thing to read Aquinas on your own. It's quite another thing to read Aquinas with someone like David Burrell, a great friend who is a congregation of Holy Cross priests. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's a very different uh, sense. And uh, then you've got people like uh, who recently died into McDonough, a Catholic moral theologian in Ireland, who uh, has and had one of the uh, warmest humanistic love of art of anyone I've ever known. Uh, the, uh, and I think that some of the most creative theological work uh, in recent times has been done by a man named Herbert McCabe, who was a Dominican uh, at, uh, at the Blackfriars hmm. in England. I mean, they, they're to be invited into that world, and it is a world. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it was just a great uh, benefit in my life. Mm. It, it sounds like it. It sounds like you were able to meet some pretty amazing people in multiple different expressions of, of Christianity and different traditions. Uh, in your memoir, you make the observation that uh, I do not want to be misunderstood. I certainly count myself a Christian, or more accurately, I have friends who count me as a Christian. And then you go on to say, uh, I've had a wonderful life because I've had wonderful friends. When you think of the friendships that you've had, um, why, why do you find the value of your friends calling you Christian as to be even maybe more important than you counting yourself a Christian? Because uh, they give me hints about how to do it. <laughs> uh, I... Um, uh, a, a friend, if they're a good friend, will say, you shouldn't have done that. You should have done this. You should think this. Mm -hmm. You should put it this way. So friends are a constant um, um, presence that help us remember what uh, what it is that has made us who we are. Hmm. And uh, that's, a, that's a great gift. Yeah. Great gift. I've had, um, I've had more graduate students and directed more dissertations than anyone should, but I'm, I don't regret a one of them. But uh, working with graduate students over time, you become friends with those you've directed, hmm. and uh, they teach you a lot, hmm. and they um, they let you know when you get it wrong. Hmm. 
You've been given the designation as uh, the, the best theologian by Time Magazine a few years ago, and yet, and I know your response is best is not a theological term or category, right? Right. 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 That's right. So, um, much respect to that answer. But you talk about learning from grad students. Uh, you've been doing this f- for years. And uh, another line you have uh, from your memoir, you say, I-, I lack faith, but that I always have the sense that I am such a beginner when it comes to knowing how to be a Christian. It sounds like you've maintained this mentality of like, I'm always learning, even as someone who's far more experienced than any grad student, yet you find them to be someone that you can learn from. What enables someone to continue to have that level of like curiosity and humility uh, of like, and being able to continue to grow like that? Well, I think part of it's class, interestingly. And uh, when you come from working class people, uh, there's there's always, uh, you're always ready to hear what someone else has to say because that's part of what it means to be on the job. And um, I, and if also Christianity, I'm not sure that we know what Christianity looks like mm-hmm. in the world in which we find ourselves. Um, uh, it certainly doesn't look like what evangelicals tell you it looks like. It doesn't look like what uh, uh, liberal Protestants think it should look like. Uh, so I'm just, uh, I just, think all the time what does it mean to be a Christian mm-hmm. in the world in which we find ourselves what does it look like mm-hmm. surely it looks like a Dorothy Day uh, it looks like a Peter McMarion um, uh, it, it looks like um, a uh, Merton yeah, so Lives like that are so significant, uh, and you ponder them because uh, it may give you some hint of what you might look like in a world in which we're not sure what Christians look like. Yeah. Oh, it's a matter of imitation. It's imitation. One of the things as uh, an evangelical who was very uh, naive about the world of Catholicism, uh, I've been taught through the podcast and getting to know uh, a handful of priests, is they've explained to me about the designation of, of a saint, which was, again, very foreign to someone from the Churches of Christ. And they talk about, like, this is uh, Father uh, James Martin, who says, like, you have saints too. Like, it's Max Lucado, it's it's Rick Warren. These are people that... Like, you're not worshiping them, but you're upholding them as, like, these are examples that you, you look you to. Know. Or you don't pray to them. Yes, sir. That, that makes a big difference. <laughs> that agreed. Yes, definitely. Don't don't do that. Um, but th- there's a value in having examples that you hold up. You know, the writer of of Hebrews talks about like remember your leaders, those who went before you, and consider the outcomes of their life of faith and imitate it. And to hear you talk about like these names of people that you say these are good examples of what it means to be a Christian. It, it reminds me like one of the values that I uphold is like having people that I go, I, I'm glad I'm on the same team as you because I, I see what you're doing and I want to be like you. And I'm glad that I'm on the same team as you. 
by the way, where where are you? <laughs> I, I'm in Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's right. I remember now. Yeah. Right. Which is why I'm going to always talk about football and use football metaphors because I live in Austin, Texas, and I can't help it. Yeah, but UT has not been UT for a number of years. Football. Well, again, uh, you're very direct and forthright, and uh, <laughs> as a Cowboys and a Longhorn fan, I I, uh, I kind of want to have a selective memory about those two uh, teams. I'm an old Cowboy fan. I still am a Cowboy fan. Mm-hmm. Andy Don Meredith, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Quarterback from Mount, Mount Pleasant, Texas. Yes, sir. It's, uh, it's great. One of my uh, fun experiences in college, uh, I was a walk-on on the track team, and there are these two sisters and we're talking about uh, our father's athleticism. I said, yeah, my dad played uh, for 10 years. He played until his 10th grade year of, of high school. And they said, oh, yeah, my dad played for 10 years too. And I go, oh, like in high school? No, 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 in, in the NFL. His, his, uh, and <laughs> their, their last name was Newhouse. You might remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You might remember Bob Bye. Newhouse. So yeah, there's, uh, there's a lot of history for football back there. But again, uh, these examples of people that go like this is what it means to be a Christian. And you said a second ago, it's, it's not what evangelicals say. It's not what, you know, liberals are saying. One of the things I, I loved in your new book, your definition of liberal theology, you said liberal theology was an attempt to talk about God by talking about humanity in a very loud voice. That's Bart. That's, can you unpack Bart's line about that? Yeah. Bart's line was that liberal, um, Theology was uh, talking about the human with a very loud voice, thereby thinking that you were gesturing something about what God might look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I just borrowed it from Bart mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the, the loud voice shouting. He was thinking about Feuerbach at the time and how uh, with Feuerbach's account of uh, belief in God being fundamentally a projection mm-hmm. of human needs. But he provided an, ex- an extraordinary account of what that meant for uh, uh, our lives mm-hmm. in terms of, of uh, how um, we project on God what, we, what our needs seem to dis- determine in a way that uh, makes God fundamentally a human construct. Mm-hmm. C.S. Lewis had a line in the maybe more popular uh, accessible literature where he talked about, um, in the beginning, God made humanity in God's image, and ever since then, humanity has tried to return the favor. And make God in human's image. And so there's a propensity for, for some strands of Christianity to, to do that. Uh, the more evangelical move um, seems to be holding on to Christendom, which is obviously a, a dying cause and it's not working out too well. And here's another line of yours, if, if you don't mind me reading it to you. No. Um, in the shadows of a dying Christendom, the challenge is how to recover a strong theological voice without that voice betraying the appropriate fragility of all speech, but particularly speech about God. What would it, there's a lot there in that sentence. Um, That sentence, I I say in another place, it's a sentence that found me. How so? Uh, How did it find you? 
uh, because I, I, it took years of thinking through uh, the use of language theologically in relationship to the world in which we find ourselves for me to be forced to say that sentence. So you discover the grammar uh, is not something that you create but finds you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, it, it's a good sentence. Yes, sir. I continue to use it. Yeah, it's a great sentence. You just said you were, f- it, it, you were forced to say it. Why, right. do, why do you feel you were forced to say that sentence? Because the desire is so much to sound like you know what you're talking about when you talk about God. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. So you talk about the appropriate fragility of all speech, particularly speech about God. How, how do we have a strong theological voice while also accepting the fragility of speech, this level of humility of... When I hear fragility, I think humility. Maybe that's not what you're implying, but how, how do you hold those together? Read Augustine's Confessions every year <laughs> in terms of how... Uh, Augustine, one of the brightest human beings that uh, we've ever known, uh, knew how difficult it is to pray truthfully to God because the confessions are one long prayer Mm -hmm. in which he he works very hard to understand how difficult it is to say God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way you learn to say God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hmm. So how, how Trinity trumps God language is uh, part of the mystery of the Christian faith. How tr- Trinity... Uh, overcome Trumps. Trump's. Can you flush that out a little bit more for me? Well, um, God is a very dangerous word because people think that they understand God and then you put a little particularity on it and say, well, I suppose there's some relationship Jesus had to God. The problem with that is, is that God is the name of the one who death could not hold. Mm -hmm. So how Christology is determinative for the doctrine of God is um, crucial, but oftentimes missed. Mm. So, I mean, the phrase, well, don't you believe in God? One, belief doesn't do you much good. <laughs> I mean, you forget what, what, what that is. Uh, it's not whether belief, do you believe in God, and that God is a word that's an empty signifier. How do you, how do you know what you mean when you say God? Uh, it's 
a rich narrative that you have to unfold to say what it is you're saying when you say God. Mm-hmm. And that narrative is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, that uh, you have to display across time. Mm-hmm. The part of, part of the problem with evangelicals is they think they have a relationship with God, which is a personal relationship, which they then go to church to have expressed. But they don't really think that the church is necessary to have a personal relationship with God because they think they know what they mean when they say God. You don't know what you mean when you say God unless, as a matter of fact, you hear it every Sunday preached authoritatively from the Bible. You don't know what God is unless you hear it preached every Sunday, authoritatively preached from the Bible. From the from the from, because that's where you're going to get the narratives that make the intelligibility of what it is when you say God work. Now, some evangelicals might not be as smart as me and would think they could critique you and and like try to come back at you, which I would never do. Uh, sure. But they would, and they might say, "Well, I can read the Bible at home, and I can, and I can listen I, to it myself." Well, years ago, I wrote. A, a little book called um, it's uh, uh, um, Unleashing the Scripture, Freeing, Freeing the Bible from uh, Americans. And I argued that the problem that we confront is um, the Protestant heresy of Sola Scriptura that got turned into Sola text by the invention of the printing press which was then given ideological power by the creation of something called the citizen, which believes that they can read documents without moral training and spiritual guidance. So we need to take the Bible away from most American Christians and make them crawl up on Ash Wednesday to uh, read the Bible on their knees where they're told that they're dust. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, so um, the idea that you can read the Bible on your own is a deep mistake. You read the Bible within the ongoing tradition of the church across 2,000 years. So uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't read the Bible. It just means it's better to do it with people that have been trained to read it from uh, uh, people uh, like origin and so on. Mm-hmm. Christianity is a received religion, meaning that we don't create it. It's not just my my idea. It's not just my experience independent of the tradition. I, I have to find myself a part of something bigger than myself. It's 2,000 years of people trying to do this. And the, uh, the American uh, propensity is I don't need anyone. I can do this on my own. And it's really difficult when those two things get intertwined, like this sort of American independence and like Christianity is called to be a part of the church. And those two things don't always go together. In some ways they get, they get mixed up. And so all of a sudden my American ideals, my American dream becomes part of what Christianity means. And that's, that's part of the problem we find ourselves in. In your new book, uh, Fully Alive, 
you are relying upon the work of Bart. And one of the things that you make the observation is that years ago, Bart was criticized because he spoke out against Nazis, which it seems like that was undoubtedly the right move. But he was more reticent to be critical of communism. And his response is, one portrays itself as part of Christianity and the other doesn't. You think that, that Bart's witness has a lot to say to us today. How, how do you think that message of being able to determine, I, I need to speak against something because it portrays itself as Christian, is applicable to us today? Well, Bart's view about communism is, is very complex. There's no question he had um, little love for rampacious capitalism. His, his, um, his ministry at Sappenville in, uh, in Switzerland, uh, he came out against the owner of the factory uh, and made, made life difficult for himself and for his family. Um, and I think I, I put it that way because it's a, it's a suggestion of how Bart's appreciation for certain forms of communism and Marxism indicated um, a strong commitment to the Christian care of the brother and sister uh, through uh, the formation of a social order in which the poor are not poor. Uh, so um, it, he, he was a radical in terms of how Christians um, should negotiate capitalist social orders. And um, as far as, and I think that that's not gone away at all for our lives. I think also that um, Bart would have found and did find American exceptionalism um, this distasteful. Mm -hmm. It's fun to use that kind of word. But uh, uh, he wanted to find an alternative for the church to be a witness in a world that looked like what makes Christianity Christianity is our support of liberal democratic regimes. And uh, he, he was insistent on a much more uh, vigorous uh, uh, relation of Christianity and a society like America. Hmm. There's a common assumption that a Christian's responsibility in our world is to make it a better place, to make it more just, and you have said that the church's job is not to make the world more just, but the church's job is to be the church. And that statement, yeah, that statement hasn't been well received, or it hasn't been universally well received. You've had a few few critics of that. 
Some have accused you of trying to withdraw from the world. Some have accused you of trying to, you know, undo the social justice that's connected with like Reinhold Niebuhr. Others have uh, accused you of not appreciating the American, you know, democratic system and the beauty that it is. Um, what what do you think you're trying to accomplish with that statement that that maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, that people don't understand or people misunderstood? I'm trying to make you think twice about what you mean when you say justice. Okay. Um, and that uh, um, also a challenge to those that think Christianity depends on being on the progressive side of history. Hmm. Uh, and uh, that is um, a very strong presumption among both religious conservatives and religious liberals in America. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, my way of, that the, uh, uh, that subject of Christian theology in America has always been America, not the church. So it's a way of trying to make the church uh, recover its sense of uh, priority to the American experience. If you you ask, what is is people's most decisive moral relation uh, uh, in America today? It's the military. And uh, that is the school of virtue that and it's very impressive and I'm very impressed by many of people that have gone through the military in terms of its uh, ability to um, engage in moral formation but um, I think um, the Christians are called not to kill hmm. so how you would have a discussion between those two very different sets of convictions is what I'm trying to uh, create Mm -hmm. the discussion. Uh, You were saying that uh, you also are trying to help us re-understand and reimagine what the word justice means. How, How would you help us define that word justice? You can't define it. I mean, definitions will, are always misleading. Okay. You, you can, what you need is to describe fundamental practices in which we learn how to be, uh, to be um, respectful of the other human being, but in a way that um, gives you a history of relations that you can call just. Mm-hmm. So that, that's good. Yeah, right. Okay, let me ask you a couple quick questions and I'll get you out of here. Okay, a couple quick ones and then we'll let you go. In your memoir, you talked about have this, uh, having a sense of uh, maybe feeling like you, you didn't fit in all the time, like you weren't a football player in Texas, which every Texan knows like right. that's central to... Uh, the, the social landscape. And it, as I was hearing you talk about that, it, 
what popped out to me is Resident Aliens, a, a book that you co-wrote with Willimon. How, how much of your experience and maybe feeling like you didn't fit in help help uh, connect to this understanding of the Christian identity as being the title of that book, Resident Aliens? I have no idea. <laughs> okay. Okay. It, it's an it's an interesting um, suggestion. The um, when how many bricklayers have you known uh, end up with academic uh, yeah. uh, academic positions for a lifetime? I mean, I've never felt at home in the university, hmm. though. Um, it's been a wonderful home for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I get it. Okay, I heard a story that once you were on Yale's campus and you were looking to find a chapel and you were struggling to find a chapel and you went up to a, a student and you asked where the chapel was at. And the student responded, according to legend, that, uh, sir, you're at Yale. We don't end sentences with prepositions. Two questions. One, did that story happen? And two, could you tell us your response to said student if it did happen? Um, the story has been, uh, had, um, has many forms. The, mo- the form that was, the er form was, I was at Harvard. I was walking across the yard and I was looking for the library. And I asked an undergraduate where the library was. Uh, and, and the undergraduate said, at Harvard, we do not end sentences with a preposition. And I said, okay, where's the library at, asshole? <laughs> now, the, this, this is a very, <laughs> very interesting development. I've been introduced by that story a number of times. And it didn't happen. Oh, <laughs> it didn't happen. Oh, but <laughs> but uh, the uh, uh, but it is one of those uh, folk uh, legends that has become so uh, uh, assumed to be true. It is <laughs> okay. Well, I don't want to uh, deconstruct the mythology of. Stanley Hauerwas. So maybe we'll just pretend like that really did happen. But um, this is uh, this has been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thank you for the time. We're going to wrap up right here um, to get you out in forty five minutes. But uh, Dr. Hauerwas, thank you so much for the time. I am thank you. deeply honored. Lovely to meet you. Yes, sir. All right. <laughs>